0: Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking a look at the self-titled album, Motley Crew, featuring... New vocalist at the time, singer John Karabi. Before we do that, real quick, I want to play a song. Um, Normally, we play songs that we've been involved in, but this is something a little different. This is a song from an upcoming album by a Swedish band called Velvet Insane. Uh, The album is called Rock and Roll Glitter Suit. It's going to be coming out July 16th on Wild Kingdom Records. And this song is called Backstreet Liberace. Oh, 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 oh Oh, 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 Coming off of the best of album, Decade of Decadence, which, despite having only really three completely new songs on it, manages to go double platinum. Bob Rock goes off and produces a little album now known as the Metallica Black Album, uh, based on how much the guys in Metallica liked the Sonics of Dr. Feelgood. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, Motley Crue signs a $25 million new record deal with Electra Records uh, that is contingent upon the original lineup remaining intact. And then they fire, or Vince quits. They either fire him or he quits. It's one of those he said, she said stories. Um, I know I've read different things. There was a rehearsal that... Uh, Vince didn't show up for, and supposedly there was terrible weather and flooding happening, and he either didn't get the fax saying the rehearsal was still on, or he couldn't uh, make it, but he didn't call to say he wouldn't be there, and the band sort of took it as being the last straw. Um, Meanwhile, in Los Angeles, there's another band called The Scream that gets signed. And puts out an album called Let It Scream, which I just listened to today to prepare for this podcast. I'd heard it when it came out, um, but I hadn't heard it since. And uh, I have to say that I understand why the guys in Motley would have heard this album and thought that John Karabi might be a good fit for where they were going uh, musically. But uh, we'll get into all that. Okay. Um, so Motley Crue goes into the studio once again with producer Bob Rock, um, they're in the studio, f- uh, between 1992, 93, A&M studios in Calif- uh, Los Angeles, Little Mountain studio- Sound Studios in Vancouver, um. They also, uh, it's worth mentioning that Scott Humphrey uh, is is working on this album. He's playing some keyboards and doing some computer stuff. Uh, that'll become relevant later on because he will uh, go on to work with the band on Generation Swine in a much bigger role. Uh, a little known fact,
1: there are apparently two versions of the cover.
0: There are. There's one that's red and there's one that's yellow. And they both came with the parental advisory explicit lyric stickers, but... I- as
1: I look at my red CD today, the sticker came off. Ah, uh oh. <laughs> so I can put this on any CD that I choose. So I'm like, we'll do that tonight. We shall see. Yeah, yeah. Who's the lucky recipient? Right. Um, but you know, before we get into the record really quick, um, yeah. we know that you know the timeline of Vince's exit. You know, and, and the circumstances behind that, we're not sure of. However, it'd be curious. To, I'd be curious to know if there were any versions of these songs that were written. With Vince, I don't think he gets any writing credit on the record, or if there were any versions of these songs that were recorded by you know, with Vince in the band.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's funny that reminds me we should mention so there's kind of a war going on between Vince and the rest of the band at this time, where the rest of the band says that the reason why Vince is no longer Motley Crue is because he's not interested in music anymore, uh, and he just wants to be a full time race car driver. And Vince then goes on to put out uh, the single and video for You're Invited, But Your Friend Can't Come, uh, and then releases a full album of new music before Motley yeah. Crue is able to put out another album, which really is a decent album. I mean, it was a lot better than I think a lot of people were expecting. And he goes on tour, opening for David Lee Roth, I want to say. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so all of that is just background to, to the fact that uh, Motley is in the studio. They're working on this album. Um, so what are your general thoughts about how this album turned out?
2: I expected to hate it. I actually think that they spent a, um, almost a little more time on it than they normally do. I'm actually trying to figure out, writing credits right now, I realized I didn't bother to actually do that. This is one of those
0: albums where they basically just said every song was written by everybody, except there's one song where they give writing credit also to Bob Rock.
2: Okay. All right. So I was just wondering about that. Okay. Um, uh, Um, My overall thought is this album is better than I thought it would be. I expected to hate it, and it actually is not that bad. And I don't want to go any further into that, because that'll just get too. I mean, the sonics on it are... You know what I mean? The way that it's recorded, it sounds really good. You know what I mean? There's a lot going for it that I expected not to like. Because the first time I heard it, I was like, this is this is terrible. And then I started to actually really listen to it without the prejudice of, you know, just automatically not liking it. And it's not bad. It's actually not a bad album. And, And like I said before, it feels like they spent more time on it than maybe they did on, say, Theater of Pain. You know what I mean? In terms of like how much writing and how much production is on the songs. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mike.
1: Yeah, I. I, you know, this album, you know, some people love it and not the crew fans and some don't, Uh, but my theory with this record is if you just approach it as a new band, if they were called some other band, you would probably love the record at the time. It's, to me, the production is killer. It's badass. It's so deep and there's so much depth and there's so much layering, but it's, it's still clean, you know, and, and present in a way. Um, you know, when I first heard it, I thought well, it kind of sounds like Motley Crue, but it sounds different. But then again, too, with the production, it's the next natural step uh, after working with Bob Rock on Dr. Feelgood in a way. It's like, you know, they, they sound even bigger on this record, which is crazy to even say after, you know, when you listen to Dr. Feelgood, how, how big that record sounds. Uh, but I also think with this with this record, uh, it's expansive in a way in terms of their approach to songs. And it's also a long record. It, it seems like a long record because all the songs are longer than, you know, your, your standard you know pop songs you would hear on, on the radio but you know that said it's also for, for that reason a great driving cd like if you want to make that awful drive from la to vegas <laughs> you know put this record on you get you, you get more miles you know per gallon in, in a way you know per you know, track because it, it gets you there but it but it, it, it holds your interest if you listen to it um but if, if you were a motley crew fan at the time and you wanted to hear vince and you want to hear the classic you know
0: you know, uh,
1: we'll get into the, you know there was an interview with Nicky uh, where he got kind of pissed off at MTV, but you know the classic like hairspray and you know strippers and da 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 kind of stuff. You, you might you weren't going to get that on this record, but considering the times and the fact that there were so many music changes with grunge and all this other stuff happening, um, they had to adapt to survive, and I think they did that. And for that reason, I think it makes it a strong record, uh, whether you consider a Motley Crue record or not.
0: Yeah, I mean we'll get into this more, but I, I think. The band themselves were very inspired and enthusiastic to be working with uh, a new singer who was also Mm -hmm. a guitar player, who was also a lyricist. And if you listen to the Scream album, you can see where he's majorly influenced by guys like Stephen Tyler and Mm -hmm. his voice in the upper registers even has kind of a Robert Plant kind of quality to it. And certainly the Scream was informed by... Bands like Motley Crue, but they were also doing similar types of things that Motley was doing in terms of slide guitar and the the kinds mm-hmm. of arrangements and that kind of groove oriented hard rock. Um, and so, the drop tunings in places, yeah, yeah, for sure. yeah. Detunings and and karabi's a decent lyricist. Um, you know, if you think back to the earliest days of Motley Crue. Nicky's original vision for the band was it was supposed to be a two guitar band um, Mm -hmm. and Nick kind of quashed that. But this at least gave them the possibility of, you know, having a a singer who could play guitar, um, that they could orchestrate things a little bit more. Um, The band was apparently on a whole regimen of clean living that was like, you know, ridiculous. I mean, not only were they not doing Hard drugs, but you know, supposedly they they were not smoking, they were not drinking coffee. I mean, this was like they were essentially straight edge at this point. Um, but I also think that they knew that it was going to be an uphill battle to reestablish themselves because you know the fact that they put "listen" on the back of the mm-hmm. album. Um, I think what what hurt this album and prevented it from really being fully accepted is the fact that Motley Crue fans l- that love the band because of the hedonism and the, the the glamour and all all of the hollywood excess which was largely personified in Vince were not mm. interested in the, it the band losing all of that. And then grunge fans that liked grunge music were not necessarily going to give Motley Crue a chance, uh, to show what they could do, even though Nikki's actually originally from Seattle and Mm -hmm. Tommy's a drummer's drummer. And, you know, Mick has the roots and the chops to convincingly pull this kind of material off. Um, you know, the band had this edict when they go into the studio, they said, no cheese, right? So no more, no more, she goes down songs about blowjobs and all this stuff. Like they, you know, they were trying to reestablish themselves. And in some ways it's a great album, but it's not necessarily a fun album.
1: No, yeah, the subject matter, and we'll get into that, but I think even before we get into that, I mean, how many other bands have really pulled off having a new established bands that had a, you know a lead singer that was you know sort of the vocal point I mean bands other than Van Halen switching over from Roth to, to Hagar how many other you know bands bands in, in you know that stature if you will you know made that transition and, and were successful in well Sabbath
0: on? did arguably okay, a okay. Of. yeah okay um, but you know something else I was thinking about too you know no band made a bigger deal out of being a band of brothers than Motley Crue did. You know, they were harping on that. And it's somewhat retcon history for them to later on say, oh, we never said we were best of friends and all this kind of stuff. Yes, you did. They said specifically that, that they were more like a gang that hung out and made music and all this stuff. Um, So, you know, I, I also think that they're kind of a weird band in the sense that... Sometimes when Vince Neal is singing, you get the sense that he's singing lyrics that are from his perspective as a person, but mm-hmm. more often than not, he's being the mouthpiece of the thoughts and ideas of Nikki Six. and mm-hmm. I can't think of one other band where that's necessarily the case. You know, if Paul Stanley's singing a song, I assume that's his point of view, mm-hmm. right? But so, all right, mm. let's, let's get into it song by song
2: then. Okay power to the music um i actually i found this not to be a good opener because i found it actually a little bit uh kind of cheesy i mean i didn't like the the effect that they put on his vocal on it um it seemed a little cliche to me um i did not one of the weird things about this album is i couldn't understand a a, a, anything that john karabi was singing I couldn't hear his, the actual words through the way he was singing. I got the vibe, you know what I mean? The feeling was there. So, most songs I listen to with, you know, by checking lyrics or whatever. And um, I didn't do that with this one because I just felt it was too cliched. So, I didn't bother to look at it. So, maybe I'm missing something. Um, Well, we should mention too, they didn't print the lyrics on the album,
0: and which is why I think if you try to find these lyrics online so often, they are wildly wrong.
2: Oh, really? Um, oh yeah, they're because <laughs> yeah, i was I was looking online for the lyrics, and I, if you're saying they're wrong, then, because one of the weird things about this album is is that it is very lyrically strong, you know what I mean that is um one of the things I really liked about the album was that it was lyrically well done um in places, so, yes, yeah, in places, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if I liked, but no, I didn't like this song even as an opener it's it felt a little too cliched it felt like they were trying to. Relive their glory days of based on the caliber of the rest of the album, it just or a lot of the stuff on the album, it just didn't do anything for me.
0: Okay. No.
2: Mike. Yeah, I'll say right
1: off the bat that, you know, pretty much I mean, I think up to this point, every record they released included a lyric sheet with full lyrics. Yeah. You know, and, and instructions on what those lyrics were meant to be. They're spoken or, you know, sent, sung or whatever. You know, but then again at the time, it was clear at the time to you know, be artsy fartsy and you know, make it seem like, okay, this might be the most important lyric and we're going to print that there. Well, you know, give me the rest of the story, guys, you know?
0: Yes, yes, I agree. And if you look at the videos that they put out for this album, that is true, too. There's a lot of muddying their waters that they might appear to be deep.
2: Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's definitely something that's very true for this album. But on the flip side of that, I would argue that the lyrical strength of it is what kept me from completely dismissing this album.
1: Uh, well, can I say this, too, about the opening track, too? And, again, lyrics have never been my thing. Um, but I'll say this. I mean, this record sounds huge. It is so deep in terms of production and layers. And it sounds massive. And it sounds great cranked up in a car. Arguably so, the
0: best-sounding album they've yeah. ever had.
1: Mm, true. It really is. I mean, it's amazing. I don't you know. I think uh, all the friends, you know, that enjoy this record, like us, you know, we embrace that. But there are other people who go, oh, it's not the crew record. Well, you know, it's it's the same band. But, you know. It, to me, it, it's a great opener because what else are you going to do? Open with a single? No, you know, I, it, it shows that they were confident enough to say we're going to open with a song that might not be the single, and you know, you, you either delve in or you don't. Uh, but at the same time, too, it, it sounds like a different band in a way than Motley Crue. Um, well,
2: yeah, it, true. Bands always open with odes to the power of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first Bon Jovi or the Bon Jovi record I own starts with something like that, and. I can't, I'm just running through my head. A Dio album opens with, you know, an ode to the power of rock and roll. I mean, it's like a common thing. And again, you're right. It's the production is fantastic, but I I, I hear what you're saying. Sorry. Yeah.
1: And some of the cool things, you know, from a musical perspective are the fact that, you know, you get the revisit to the classic uh, harmonica stuff, you know, in the song, which is, you know, showcased on things like, you know, uh, smoking in the boys room. Uh, you get a cool, you know, wah-wah solo from Mick and it pans left and right. You know, it's, it's well executed overall in terms of a song, you know. But then again, when it comes to the chorus, it's kind of disappointing in a way, you know, because it's so heavy and you get to the chorus, you go, power to the music in the street. That's interesting that you say that. I'm going to disagree. <laughs> okay. The, okay. See, I just kind of, it needs some sort of punctuation or something to say, what else other than that? You know, because that, that's a that's, that's repetitive phrase, but like there should be like a beeline in a
0: way. Well, okay, so here's my take on the song. I think that the opening riff is really a grunge version of the riff to shout at the devil, right? It's that same A, B, A turnaround idea. Dun, 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 they adapted what they were already doing into the the grunge thing. The verses for the song don't really work for me lyrically. I mean, I think it's just, it's almost Dada-esque, right? It's, it's just about the sound of the words and the meaning is at best nebulous, um, which is the kind of thing that, that Kurt Cobain could do and do well and get away with. Um, but I don't think it it serves them here, you know. I mean, we're one step away from that thing that thrash bands do sometimes, where they just put together a bunch of words that end in "shun" and and pretend that there's some meaning here. You know, it's like contemplation, <laughs> retribution. You know, mastication. I mean, it's just like, escalation. Yeah. yeah, escalation. I mean, it's like. Um, but I actually really like the chorus. Like I find the chorus to be really catchy. Um, you know, this whole power to the music in the streets thing, right? Which is, I mean, there's only two ways that the band could go is to one say, you know, to reject the thing that is is now popular, the new music that the kids are getting into, or to put out a song that recognizes it's almost like a passing of the torch, you know, and to say whatever the new thing is, if it's coming from the street, it's, it's valid. And I think every band has this idea where they, they say to themselves, you know, when we were starting out, we were writing songs together. It was coming from the streets, right? Like mm-hmm. every yeah. band does that. It doesn't matter if they were actually writing the songs in their parents, you know, basement or their, their bedroom or whatever, but it was real. It was from the streets. And I think this is sort of playing on that idea I just wish the verses made more sense. I agree
1: for sure. And I kind of look at the chorus now in a different way because of this, so thank you, Dave. Um, you know, and yes, the verse should, you know, tie in with the chorus, but also one of the things we didn't mention uh, that was also happening at the time other than grunge was the rise of rap and hip hop. I mean, you had, you know, Snoop Dogg and Dr. Drain, all this kind of stuff, and you know, the whole street knowledge thing. I mean, it was, it was huge, but, you know, We'll get into the tour later, but I remember seeing the tour and thinking, these guys seem different. They seem kind of angry about something, and I want to look that up, so I checked out some clips online of them playing live, and I stumbled on something where I think they were playing Dr. Feelgood, and Nikki said before the songs, like, oh, I guess I need to change my name to Snoop Doggy 6 you know, in order to get my songs played on MTV, and, you know, and there was an interview where you know, he, they were being interviewed by somebody from MTV and the guy's like, so what about, you know, the hairspray, spandex and, you know, and strippers, you know, of the, of the old days? And Nicky's like, really? That's the, the question you're going to ask me? Who's giving you these questions? These are terrible. We're out of here. And they, and they ended the interview. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. I have to, is that online? I have to find
1: that. Yeah, it's online. Just check out YouTube. But like, for sure, like they were like on a mission, you know, but they, the shame of it is they were such a strong band and they had a new dimension of a guitar player, singer. And they were competing with grunge, and they were competing with rap, and, and they were doing a damn good job of it all. Because this record overall, is to me, is, is badass, and it's strong, but you know, the audience wasn't buying it in a way. You know, the, you know, The fan base wasn't buying it, and if you saw the tour, you might have witnessed that. We can get into that later.
0: Right. Well, they could have gone the other way, right? They could have gotten a Vince Neil sound-alike, and they didn't do that. Yeah. Now, I've heard conflicting stories about... Um, How John Karabi got the gig, and he says that he met with the guys um, and they jammed through some Motley Crue songs and they liked the way he sounded. Doc McGee says that they hired him just because they liked his voice and that they didn't even bother to have him try to sing the Motley stuff before they hired him. Who knows where in the truth lies? I'm thinking that John Karabi's probably being more honest about that.
1: Yeah, what I what I found online was something where I guess uh, John had read an interview in, in a magazine where Nikki you know complimented you know his work on the uh, the scream album yeah, but scream and I guess Nick uh, you know John wanted to contact Nikki and say hey you know thanks for the you know, the compliment blah 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 and then I guess you know the record label whoever answered the phone said leave your number and you know, we'll have him call you back and then he, he called back and then I guess you know he later found out that Vince had, had left the band and and I guess maybe that led to things happening who knows what the truth is but you know, there's so many dimensions to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But John Crowley apparently had a lot to do with the next track, Uncle Jack, um, which is apparently in real life, his uncle was a child molester, perhaps molested him. Um, And so this is a song about how much, you know, he hated his uncle and wanted to kill him.
2: Okay. Well, that uh, makes the song a lot more powerful. Yeah. The lyric, um, I mean, I like the song as is. I mean, it it reads a little bit like a really mean version of Captain Howdy by Twisted Sister. Um, Very, uh, it's very dark. Um, I mean, that goes without saying, I guess. Um, But I actually uh, like the song quite a bit. I'm I'm having trouble remembering because... Uh, what the music was like but at at first I was at first I was like oh great this is their serial killer song every every scary band does a song about a serial killer but um, the more I read the lyrics you know what I mean and the more I realized that it was like his passionate plea against this guy I kind of actually dug it so I liked it. Mike?
1: Again, it's well done. It, it's it, the production is killer. You got this sort of lullaby intro, and it leads into a heavy subject matter. You know, it, it's sort of a haunting song when it comes to the subject matter. Um, mm-hmm. but it also mentions uh, things like suicide, which is you know, mentioned in a later song on the record. Um, yeah, but when that band kicks in, in on that second part of the, of the verse, I mean, it sounds huge. <laughs> you know? I mean, I've seen footage of these guys rehearsing for the tour, and they were just rehearsing in a room. And they had Nikki had four ampig. 8 by 10s and Mick had a wall of marshals and you know if that wasn't enough in front of the drums they had two marshall 4 by 12s facing the singers, so it, they were meant for you know maximum impact and this this is an example of how that song can be presented but yeah again the production is just killer if, if you put on headphones and listen to this whole album you'll, you'll hear other things you didn't even know were there if you just put on your stereo or your car you know you're not going to hear it but like put headphones on it's an amazing album in terms of production but it's it's a dark subject matter. Um, it, but it works. I mean, it, it's a great arrangement, but you know, is it the kind of thing that Motley Crue fans want to hear at the time? Probably not, but Hey, you know, is it expansive record? Expand your mind, you know?
0: Right. I mean, in some sense, is it politically correct? Motley Crue? Sort of. I mean, it's, it's, you know, mm-hmm. nobody likes child molesters. It's kind of low hanging fruit. <laughs> I mean, uh, but... if you want to choose something to be against. Right? Yeah. But, um, but again i think it's coming from a place of honesty with karabi so you know there's that but I, I i second your your talk about the production there's all kinds of interesting ear candy and mm-hmm. cool stuff happening in the arrangements and keyboards and um that leads us into the next song which was the first single hooligan's holiday
2: um i like it i mean it's it's sort of a throwback to um it's sort of like classic Motley in terms of the lyric and the way that it's done. Although I think it's pretty interesting, the choice of the word hooligan. I mean, who's like, when was the last, time you know, unless you actually live in mm-hmm. Britain, you know what I mean? And the, you have the soccer hooligans, you know what I mean? The, the word hooligan hasn't really been used in the United States since, you know, the 1950s. Um, right. Well, it, it
0: Nikki six got it because that apparently was the common, uh, a commentator on the news said it about the LA riots said, Oh, it looks like it's a hooligans holiday here in Los central, South central Los Angeles. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, it definitely, it's sort of a classic Motley Crue song about sort of the crazy life. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, it's got a nice little groove to it. You know what I mean? In terms of, and I like the, the chorus is, you know, kind of catchy, that kind of stuff. So I, I actually liked it quite a bit. Um, It's not my favorite Molly Cruz song, but it's one of my favorite ones in this album. Mike?
1: Yeah, on the title, I I will say that uh, the term hooligan, at least in my neighborhood, at least in my grade school, was was current as of fifth grade because I had a group of friends that would, you know, misbehave, if you will. And uh, we got called out one day. We'd all stand up and... You know, be accounted for and they said you're a bunch of hooligans
2: <laughs> I was, okay yeah, yeah but that was your 90 year old principal saying that wasn't that a- well that's true yeah <laughs> they, were, they were passing
1: the torch i guess in a way right, so yes. now I, you know now i guess i can relate but yeah you know when i point being when this song came out and this was a single i i i dug it I, you know i i kind of bought into it i realized that this is a whole different motley crew but but i like it um, and I'm not not quite sure why it's going to take me a long time to get into this record, but it gives me something to sink my teeth into, and I, I enjoy that about a record, in a way. If you get cookie cutter stuff, and you're going to be bored with it, you're like, I've heard it before, right? And, and that, you know, with no disrespect to this band, they're they're capable of reproducing what they've done, and it's been heard before. But this album, you know, you're lucky if you can find a few things that sound like classic La Crew in this record, which to me is a positive thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it definitely, um, yeah. That's, it felt like a song that was written prior to um, them, but I, I like what John Karabi added to it. Yeah,
1: and also Tuman comes with the lyrics and they, they do little subtle touches like, you know, a
2: piece of the a- Piece of the action? Yeah. yeah, piece of the action piece yeah. of the pie, which at first I thought was kind of stupid. And then I listened to it a few more times. I was like, yeah, that's actually kind of a cool way to put it. You know, you want a piece of the action piece, yeah. So you want to be part of it and you want some of it. You know, I like that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so, yeah, I mean, I think that this
0: song is born out of that feeling of how they must have felt around the time of Dr. Feelgood, when they were not only one of the biggest bands in hard rock, but they were literally one of the biggest bands in the world. You know, and they were playing multiple, I mean, you know, when you're at that level of success, I mean, you, they, your time is not your own. I mean, you know, you've got people scheduling your time in 15 minute increments, like from the moment you wake up to the moment you fall asleep. And um, so I'm, you know, I think it comes from that honest point. I think the riff itself is so monstrous, you know, that it almost completely sells the song for me. I don't know if it should have been the first single. It doesn't scream single to me,
2: and you know. That was surprising to me as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, on that subject, we'll, we'll get to it later. There is one song in this record I think is the closest thing to a classic Motley Crue song, and you know, I'll recommend at that time what, what I think should have been the single, but we'll get to that later. Okay. But but also on a personal note, you know, Dave, you and I, you know, wrote songs together in Dame Fortune. Without realizing I think this is my blueprint for the song, uh, Both Sides of Midnight, in a way. Okay. You know, it was a sort of drop-tuning riff with, you know, the tremolo guitar on the other side and, you know, the contrasting tones and the heaviness in, in, in the space. You know, I, now that I heard this song today again, I was like, whoa, I, there's a real good chance that I was influenced by this song uh, when I came to writing that those riffs. So, and again, thank you today for giving me the opportunity to, to work with you on, on those tunes. That was, that was a fun time.
0: Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it's always dangerous when you're singing a song, though, about how everybody wants a piece of you, you know, when, because when this album came out, that was actually not the case. I mean, it can, it can come off as of sounding very sort of egotistical and, you know um, I think that was somewhat of a trap, but I like the yeah. song. Um, This was the second single misunderstood.
2: Okay. So this is where my notes get confusing. Is this the um, one about the boy who's, dad isn't coming home that one yeah this is okay okay i actually thought that 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 should be the single Mm -hmm. it is not a motley cruz song but it is a good song i mean the production on it is incredibly well layered um a lot of stuff going on in the song lyrically pretty strong skirts the edge of uh cliche with the whole idea of daddy's not coming home or whatever but it um actually tells a story has a great like you know um riff to it as well as sort of that acoustic bass layer you know what i mean like it it really works like it's it is my favorite song on the album and again i thought i would not like it that's the that's the story of every single song on this album it's like ah i'm not gonna like this but the but it, it actually stands up i mean it really is well done it is a well-written song and so i you know i totally dig it
1: mike Again, it's, it's a great tune. I mean, the, if you're going to record acoustic guitar, it should sound like this.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: It's, it, it sounds full. It sounds like your head is in the sound hole of that acoustic guitar, which is really the way it should sound. And somehow, you know, nobody ever really achieves that. Yeah. Uh, it also, it, to me, is is very um, Zeppelin in a way and kind of bad company with the acoustic strumming guitar. Uh, but there's also, I hear a lot of Beatles influences, like the, the oh, re-intro yeah. with the backwards guitar and the Mellotron type sound on the guitar is cool. And the riff itself is really kind of like, you know, strawberry fields with that descending thing uh which is cool and also there's the string sections Yeah, the, the strings songs.
0: are arranged really it with it's very tasty when yeah. you know, especially when the heavy part comes in i mean that's yeah. that's something that you know works really well and yet we haven't really heard that before in a lot of stuff
1: yeah and then when they come in with that second you know it, it, we mentioned that these songs are long i think most of them are like five minutes long you know, when you get to part two, it's almost like, oh, it's a whole different song, but no, it's the same thing. <laughs> it's the same song, but it sounds massive. And then they go back to the, you know, the, the intro again at, at the end and it's well arranged. It's well written. It, there's a screaming Wawa solo, you know, it, which kind of reminds me of, uh, Wawa of a slide, which reminds me of Eric Clapton in a way. Uh, but also too, we, we were talking last week about, uh, the Tommy Bolin thing. Um, and I, I did some research, um, and I did see some stuff in the Tommy Boland box set. Apparently what, what, the Nikki Six connection was, I guess, Nikki had mentioned that Tommy Bolin was supposedly his favorite guitar player. Ah. And, th- and then Tom Suh taught, 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 well, if that that's cool, then I mean, we should, you know, put together this box and we did that and blah, 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 blah. But anyway, point being, the, if you hear the other voice on this song in the chorus, it's Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple, who was in the band at the time. Mm, okay. Deep Purple. Um, you, you know, you, if you know Glenn and you've heard his stuff, I mean, it's, he's a competitive singer i mean if he had to be like a co-vocalist with david coverdale then he's going to be you know stepping up his game right yeah you know so when you hear that other voice on this song it's glenn doing his thing where he's you know doing what i call you know backing lead vocals you know because it's you know he's not going to be in the background he's going to he's going to overpower you in some way you know.
3: Uh-huh.
1: yeah um, but it works um you know and it's cool to hear that, that, other, that other voice there um but yeah it, it definitely doesn't sound like a Motley Crue song. It sounds like it could have been something from either you know, the Scream or maybe Union Later or, or or like on an old Zeppelin record. I love it. it, it it's well written and, and well played.
0: I like the song a lot. I I do feel like it could be lyrically a little stronger. Like I think that Nikki's on to a really interesting concept about how people that feel life has passed them by or life has somehow wronged them. Are misunderstanding the situation in the sense that life isn't inherently good or bad; it's just life, and that you know you're ultimately responsible for your own happiness and what happens. Um, but the phrase "life has misunderstood me." Nobody actually says that phrase. You know what I mean? Like that's something that that he's saying in the song, but it's kind of it's 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 not actually a thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So I, I I can't help but feel there's a better way to to get across what what he's trying to convey overall with the song.
2: I hear what you're saying. I kind of actually like that lyric because it's sort of open ended. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. All right. Not to sound, you know, trite,
1: but it's also a play on words. It keeps it interesting in a way, you know. It's easy to misunderstand things if you don't pay attention. But, you know, is there some other being that's misunderstanding me? You
0: know? Right, right, right. I, I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> love Shine. I don't really like it. I, it felt fillery to me. I could be wrong, but I don't, you know what I mean? I didn't, uh, musically, it was pretty interesting. But just the word Love Shine, I just didn't like. So I re- really felt fillery to me. I didn't, I, I skipped it a couple of times even. Go ahead, Mike, tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, as a song itself, in terms of the
1: lyrics, it, I, you know, let your love shine on me or, You know, let your love come down on me or, you know, drip down on me or whatever the hell you're, you know, you're, you're passionate Right, yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's been said before,
3: mm.
1: you know, probably in a better way. But the things I like about the song are, again, the production, the acoustic guitar is great. Again, sounds like bad company, feel like making love. It also reminds me a bit of uh, the Joe Walsh song, The Confessor, from one of his uh, early 80s records. (laughs) Okay. And there's also, there's another voice in this record, but from what I found online, it's not Glenn Hughes, it must be some other person uh, in the chorus. But, you know, the production's killer. Um, You know, the solo has like some sort of panning, floating things going on. And it's it's cool, you know, but it's also, yeah, it's kind of... I don't know. They probably could have done without this track. It, again, if, it, if there's a song in this record that doesn't sound like Motley Crue, this is one of them.
0: To me, it evokes a lot of stuff from, say, Zeppelin 3. Yeah. In terms of the, o- the overall sound, that kind of folksy kind of thing. And I, I really do like the the way that the the orchestra is orchestrated and, and kind yeah. of lifts the song up, takes it yeah. to another level. I actually like this song. I think that... That an album like this needs a song that is fairly refreshingly straightforward yeah. and short. Um, yeah. and I, you know, I I like the lyrics. Um, you spoke to me in riddles, and the mystery remains. Mm-hmm. You know, that idea of woman as unknowable sphinx that no one can c- completely understand, but perhaps because of that, one is devoted to her in terms of one's affection. So yeah. yeah, I actually I have to disagree. I, I think that okay. the, the song belongs on the album.
1: I, I think now after hearing that, I think the, the the album needs this song
0: in that way for sure. I agree. So, poison apples.
2: Uh, this is actually another one of my favorite uh, albums on it or songs on the album because it's the lyrically it's self reflexive. I love the idea of poison apples. Uh, I love the idea of them sort of writing about themselves or whatever. Um, you know what I mean? And sort of how they lived through it or the, the stuff that they, um, you know what I mean? The, the pain, whatever, the, the life they lived and how they're sort of, you know, who knows, they're sort of reflecting back on it or whatever. So I actually, and then the, 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 the musically, the song is really, really good as well. Really strong. Um, I got no details that I wrote down. I just remember like, liking the song itself. So it's it's uh, one of my favorites on the album. Mike?
1: Uh, yeah, in terms of the writing, we earlier mentioned that there was a song that was uh, uh, co-written by Bob Rock. This is the one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, in terms of the production, it's killer. You got the cool like, lo-fi intro that's kind of like coming through the AM radio and all of a sudden mm-hmm. it kicks in with the band. It sounds massive. It sounds huge. Yeah. Um, yeah again... We were talking earlier about what should have been the single. I think this should have been the single. This is probably, like, the most classic Motley Crew like song in this record. Mm. Um, And I think it might have been an easy sell as a single, you know, to to older crew fans that might have been looking for that kind of thing.
2: Well, it's almost like they're talking about themselves in the past tense. That's what I always... I don't know. Does anybody else buy that? Sorry. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah.
0: Which I think is kind of an inherent problem with Motley Crue when so much of their existence and definition of who they are is based upon being these wild young guys that at a certain point, if you're going to keep writing songs about that and you're a middle-aged guy who's married with children you know all you can really do is write about your past right i mean uh yeah um i i like the song i think it's a little weird that they chose to do a song like this and have karabi sing it because Hmm. he wasn't there for all of this he wasn't a part of it i mean yeah the scream is from los angeles and so maybe there's some commonalities in how they came up but clearly nikki six is writing about the early days of Motley Crue.
1: Yeah, but then again, we mentioned, you know, that, you know, the previous singer, a previous guy was, you know, the mouthpiece. Yeah, no, I know, that, I know. That, that, that's for sure. But, you know, at the same time too, I mean, I know, I have, you know, a, a personal friend that, uh, you know, gave me some insight on, on, you know, where where John came from. Um, you know, he was out here just about as long as, as anybody. Um, apparently, he moved out here with uh, friends of mine, uh, Rob's... Uh, Rob Azzi and Frank Simecka, who were in, in a band later uh, known as Graveyard Train, mm. uh, apparently uh, those Rob and Frank played in a band called um, Angora with with John. Okay, you know, so they're playing playing places like the Troubadour and whatnot, and like around like eighty four or eighty five. You know, so they were you know these guys that were on the scene, and for somebody to arrive at you know quote unquote you know Heart Attack and Vine from you know pe- uh, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is not a surprise in a way. So in a way, even if John wasn't a part of you know, Motley Crue's success in terms of their buildup. Uh, he was a guy that was a transplant that you know and you know established himself in L.A. Uh, whether or not he was recognized until later when he got in bands like The Scream and Motley Crue is a different thing. Uh, but you know all those guys, you know at least the guys that I know that, that knew John, you know they were all slugging it out in the scene. And I have a funny story about uh, you know John knowing Robin Frank. I was playing a show at what was the Cat Club on Sunset which is next to the whiskey and I was playing with the blessings and you know because John knew you know Frank and Rob I guess Rob's you know big pizza fan so there's a pizza shop up the street from the whiskey all of a sudden the door opens we're playing the, the show we're playing in the set John walks in with a, a pizza box <laughs> reaches across the stage with the stage like the size of a postage stamp if you've been to, you know what was the you know the the, the cat or the cat club sorry yeah, yeah. so this pizza piece pizza pizza goes over to the drummer Rob's like hey bro thanks you set it down you know he's like no problem bro
0: So,
1: yeah, back to playing the set <laughs> yeah but you know that's how connected those guys are and you know where they came from and you know they're east coast guys you know but they deliver musically so anyhow and pizza how
2: fast could we go for that joke yeah
1: <laughs> Aha. yeah but I, I agree it's like if he wasn't there for the, the full story so be it but he, i think he walked the walk and he, he can he can talk the talk and tell the story
0: okay hammered this is about vince right
2: yeah that's what i i took it as i i don't have much of an opinion on it. i mean i i know what it's about it's sort of a diss track but um yeah I, uh, Which I, is I like a very it.
0: rap thing to do. Speaking about the influence of rap, to right, do yeah, all. yeah, yeah. I mean, I like.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I t- it didn't blow me away as a song, you know what I mean? So whatever. But I, I mean, I like the idea of them talking about Vince and talking crap about him you know because he doesn't look that kind of stuff that's always I mean whenever you uh I sometimes wonder about this podcast because my favorite stuff to always read and I guess this makes me a horrible person is when when people read bad reviews of things you know what I mean when they talk about how bad something is because that's when the writer really comes out when they talk about things you know not being that good um so that's why I like you know diss tracks and that kind of stuff so Mike
1: it's not really a strong track to me, but I have a question that that sort of like bridge riff, you know that da, is that a zeppelin riff or a black Sabbath riff? It sounds like something I've heard before, and I can't figure out it's
2: driving me nuts from the great classic rock blender
3: I guess it
0: sure does sound familiar now that you mention it. I can't think of where it's from though. yeah, that's a good one., If anybody knows. Yeah, yeah. We're interested in knowing. I mean, it's a bit plotting, but, you know, I kind of like the song. I mean, supposedly Vince was the one more than any of the others that really objected to the whole straight edge thing. And, you know, Mm. uh, so they're sort of criticizing him for, I I suppose, getting hammered. Um, Yeah. But again, for a band that sort of defined themselves as, you know, the, the center of all excess and hedonism, for them to now go on criticizing a guy primarily because he's drinking does seem, I don't know, maybe a little hypocritical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Till death do us part. Yeah, I... Uh... I got nothing. I didn't really particularly like it. I don't, you know what I mean? Like nothing really stood out about the song. I know we're getting late into side two here where you usually have the weakest stuff, Um, but I didn't, you know what I mean? I liked, it didn't really do anything for me. Go ahead, Mike, what?
1: Well, again, it's all about, you know, it's it's so hard to to say sometimes. Like you could write a good song musically, you know, and and you know, and ly- it, but lyrically doesn't work. I mean, but the funny thing about this song is, this title was apparently the original title that was considered for the album, right? It was the working title while they were yeah, the working they, title.
3: Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> really, funny yeah. funny
1: Because you know, if, again, if you watch the MTV documentary um, that was done around the time of the Dr. good, they go to that thing at the end where like they're saying, I, you know, Nicky's like, I can't see play with any other guys in this band other than the four guys in this band, and then here it is, like. Two and a half years later, it's a whole different lineup, a whole different musical approach, and that all went out the window. Yeah, but I, uh, lyrically, though, I think it's an interesting thing to you know to go into the the thing where you're like, hey, it's, it's me, myself, and I. Two death to us part.
0: Yeah, that's a cool play on words in a way. You know, a it, is. Phrase. it is. It yeah. is. I mean, I actually I like this song. I yeah, for for the reasons that you mentioned, I do think that that's that is. Um, that makes the song more interesting than it would be. I mean, him talking about, you never understood the pride inside me. I think a lot of people had written off Motley Crue as this band. that wasn't a serious band, you know, and I I Mm -hmm. do kind of appreciate this song as a declaration against that. I do think he's kind of trying to have it both ways though. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. putting the Motley Crue till death do us part in the, in the, album inserts and stuff as if he's talking about the rest of the band, but the song yep. itself is essentially saying, I'm a lone wolf. And if nothing else, I have myself. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, Um, but I like, I like it. I like the, the orchestration, the instrumentation. I mean, it's really, again, sophisticated with the orchestra and the keyboards. And I mean, it really has so much depth and it's so, yeah. It's so open that that like I you know, it sells the song for me.
1: It does, and let's get into this for a minute because you know we're looking at you know an, a band that has been through the things where like you know they've probably been through like you know the gated reverse reverb on the snare drum and all that kind of stuff you know and they're they're branching out in terms of tones. I mean, it sounds massive, but also like the breakdown. Of this song reminds me of stuff that would have been on uh, Queen's "Like Operation Mindcrime," you know, the chorus guitar and stuff. You mm. know, but I don't know. I mean, for God's sakes, I mean. Wouldn't we all love to you know have an album that was produced by Bob Rock for, for crying out loud? You know, it, that must be such a great experience. I mean, the guy's a player, he's a gear collector, he knows how to get tones. You know, it, enough credit you know, isn't given to, to that guy in the band for this record. It's 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 sort of an undiscovered gem in a way when it comes to just learning how to produce a well written album and you know a fully produced album. It's
0: it's killer. And if I had one criticize criticism of what he did with mick on dr feelgood it's that there's so much reverb uh going on on some of those guitars that Mick's guitars almost sound like an undefined wash of notes at certain points and that's not true with this record like you can really hear every note and everything all the guys are doing with a lot of clarity but it still sounds huge
1: but also with Claire, we consider, too, that there's a lot of, and this is technical, but there's a lot of uh, stereo echo going on in the record, a lot of panning, you know, a lot of Leslie guitar, too. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, if you put headphones on, you're like, whoa, what's happening here? It's really worth revisiting with headphones because not only is, it, again, this it sound massive in a car or at home, but put some headphones on. It's,
0: it's going to take you for a ride. It's cool. For sure. All right. Welcome to the Numb.
2: Um, almost as if they're trying to rewrite... Pink Floyd's Welcome to the Machine in terms of the fact that it's about, you know, society keeping you anesthetized so they can keep you enslaved kind of deal. Um, The, uh, you know, keeping the truth from you, that kind of stuff. Big, massive sound to it. So I actually I actually really like the song a lot. I thought it was really, really good. Um, It doesn't, you know, it's not my favorite Molly Cruz song, but it's definitely pretty interesting. And I mean, lyrically, it's fun, you know, the ideas that they have going on and it comparing, you know, the government to a drug pusher and all that kind of stuff also i mean does it seem to have i don't know it seems to also be sort of about tabloid things searching for dirt but i don't know i guess dirt is just euphemism for drugs mike
1: uh, again, i i gotta go back to the production it reminds me of something um that might have been on aerosmith Pump. Mm. You know, uh, with, with the effects that are at the beginning, but also that riff itself is very you know Joe F and Perry kind of like uh, eat, the, eat the Rich.
0: Yeah, there's definitely an Aerosmith influence for sure. Yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, it's you know, obviously the, the Motley Crue concept of heavy groove, and that comes across in this song. Um, but also in the pre-chorus, there's those you know climbing like double stops that are kind of Zeppelin like. Um, oh, you know, the song "Heartbreaker," you know, da 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 da. You know, kind of you know blues turnarounds that are cool. You know. It, it, Again, there's just so much in terms of production that will will make it seem if you, yeah, if you just kind of let yourself fall into the song, then you, you'll dig it. And then if you got to revisit the lyrics later, then you know that's going to be your agenda. But it's 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 a badass of, of, a, of a track. I mean, it's well written, well executed.
0: Yeah, musically, it's not my favorite song on the album, but I I think that actually lyrically, it's ahead of its time. I think that it's more hmm. relevant now. You know, for for so long we lived in a society where the problem was access to information and how to get it. And information was being hoarded and kept in, in, in different places that many people didn't have access to. And now we live in this information society where there's just this fire hose of constant information and it becomes a huge task to try to discern what is the truth and what is diff's information, And part of the result of that is that you have people that are siphoned off into completely different experiences of media and fail utterly to be able to see other people's point of view because they're not dealing with the same information. And I think that this song actually touches on all of that um, in a way that's that's profound today and was just becoming true back then. So, if, if yeah. no other reason, it's actually very interesting because of that.
1: Uh, but also, one, one more thing on you know, from a technical point of view, because it's fun to point these things out. I mean, the solo has, you know, obviously the classic uh, Digitech whammy effect, you know, that was popular at the time, and then everybody had one on their board. Joe Perry, you know, you name it. Uh, later, Tom Morello had one and really made it a key point of his sound. Uh, but the cool thing is, uh, check out the, uh, the solos because there's kind of like a real cool Joe Walsh-like thing with like unison bands, like that, you know, Stranglehold, Ted Nugent. You know, there's like sort of like reverse, you know, licks and stuff. And also the chromatic climbs are very uh, Hotel California solo in a way. So from a guitar player point of view, there's a lot uh, that I could take away from this song for sure. Um, it also shows the maturity in terms of mixed playing. Okay. You know, he can drop influences and put on a record and you know, good for him for doing that. I admire that.
0: Cool, cool. All right, next song up, um, probably my favorite song on the album, uh, Smoke the Sky.
2: Um, Lyrically, it's pretty interesting. I mean, I know it's sort of about dope, which is fine, but uh, there's something they even don't they mention roosevelt and all sorts of like a lot of weird name checks in there and yeah um, there's a whole lot of interesting name checks we'll get into all that yeah yeah i'm gonna i'm not not even gonna try now but uh yeah it's a really interesting it's definitely like the um the ivy league version of sweet leaf you know what i mean it's uh you know (laughs) i really kind of actually um I, i mean i liked it i mean you know i'm i am definitely not someone who um smokes pot or anything like that but it was definitely like a, a strong argument for it you know what i mean like it's you know so i, I kind of dug it mike uh i mean
1: three words it, it kicks major ass it's killer track i mean i remember when this uh record came. you know i guess at the time it was probably a cd and a cassette i bought the cassette and put it in my car and I think I was taking a friend uh, that was in a Kiss tribute band that was in the time, you know, to a music store, whatever doing, or going to lunch and say, check this out, and I put this song and cranked it up. And I remember him just going, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was just like massive. it's, you know, again, it's interesting that you have a band at the time was supposedly on this regimen of, you know, no drugs and no caffeine and no nothing. Yes,
0: writing a a pro-legalization song, essentially. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and then a breakdown where like you know the guys you know lighting the joint and kind of choking on it. So okay, you know whatever, whatever. But yeah, I mean this this track just kicks major ass. It definitely should have been on the record, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, In terms of who, I mean, they name check Marco Polo, Socrates, Bill Clinton, um, JFK. you know, I mean, obviously, one could argue historical records are sketchy at best for some of the verification of this, but um, but I actually think that this has the best lyrics on the entire album, and 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 the thing that I think some of the finest lyrics that Nikki Six has ever written, when when they talk when the lines, JFK sold us freedom. Or was it just a business toke? 63 Mm. went up in smoke. He was the great seducer crawling from our TVs, but he breathed hope into our future. And before he died, he smoked the sky. Now. Wow. Wow. um, You know, JFK was... The probably the last time the left wing had a true Mm -hmm. figure who was at the center of the cult of personality, right? Where Mm -hmm. you actually, to this day, have Roman Catholics that have the picture of JFK framed in their rooms or their back rooms like he's a a saint or something. And the fact that these lyrics really delve into... Mm -hmm. To what degree was, you know, that kayfabe, right? He took the rhetoric of the freedom of the 60s. Was that something that he really believed in or was that something that as a politician he was simply using... To gain power and sell the people, right? Ooh. Sixty-three went up in smoke. Obviously, that's when he was assassinated. But talking about the him being the great seducer, crawling from our TVs, he was the first president that took advantage of the TV generation to sell himself as kind of a product. Um, and you know, but then saying, but for all of that, whether or not it was kayfabe or he really was as good as he seemed. Um, and there was a dark side to him, he breathed hope into the future. I mean, talk about a sophisticated analysis of all aspects of a complex figure in just a few lines of a rock song. I mean, yeah. I find it hard to think of another song that pulls that off as well as Nikki Six does here. know
2: yeah, I agree.
1: Say- yeah and then factor in the whole Marilyn Monroe thing. I mean these are all things that today would have been so exposed and so, you know, <clears throat> you are on our shit list and we're going to we're going to call you on it, you know. You know, my goodness. Yeah, but absolutely you know that's again one of the major you know, disappointments with this record is they really should have given you a lyric sheet. It would have been so much fun to delve into the lyrics at the time at the time because much like some of the tunings on this record that it's it's almost sometimes impossible to know what note they're playing because it's, mm. it's tuned down so low. The lyrics are so back there in, ter- in the production,
0: it's hard to understand. Like you said, John, like what, what what John is saying. Yeah, his voice is so compressed it almost blends into the music, which is cool in, in terms yeah. of like the production, but it, it doesn't make it that clear to understand all the words always.
2: It's impossible to hear what he's saying. That's why I had to actually... I'm using the iTunes, you know, lyric translation thing. So I don't even, you know what I
0: mean? Yeah. And that uh, we, we, I have issues with that because basically the way that works is there's a whole separate program that anybody can just put any lyrics whatsoever. And, oh. you know, it's almost like a Wikipedia thing. So, you know, unless it's actually coming from the band or the record company, you can't place that much faith in those. Okay. No.
1: But you know, another point too, this is sort of a, you know transition into you know john's later work with union i think that the chorus in this song sounds like something that very well could have sat on on the union records that john recorded with uh, bruce Kulick. you know
3: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. But, you know so it's not surprising that you know bruce you know picked up on that later and, and they utilized that sort of approach for, for the, the songs but yeah it, this is one of the stronger tracks on record for sure i think again just get in the car crank it up you can move mountains with yeah this the energy
0: think- on this song is off the
1: charts Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you can write a song that comes across that way, then you've done your job. That's what a song's all about. It's something to make you want to, you know, feel good about yourself or just, you know, accomplish something and, and
0: feel good about yourself. Yeah, it's killer. Right. Love it. Unlike this next song, <laughs> which is pretty da- damn nihilistic, Dropping yeah. Like Flies.
2: Um, I don't remember this song. Oh. Uh,
1: let me try to remind you. The intro kind of sounds to me like uh, the Forerunner song, Urgent. Oh, okay, with, All right. with like Robin Trower kind of E major riffs, you know, mm-hmm. and also the
2: double stops like two Rolling Stones like boom, but up, but up, but up, but up, but Well, actually, yeah, looking at this, it comes in at the second longest song on the album, so it feels like I should remember it. I remember like liking it, you know what I mean, because it had sort of a nihilistic, you know, rough edge to it. Um, but I don't remember what the lyrical content is. I remember being impressed by the lyrics, but not. I don't remember what they were. Um, and I remember the riff was pretty cool, or at least musically, I remember being, you know, liking it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a song that, that, that talks about um, cities decaying and there being a war zone in the streets and graffiti right. everywhere. And, you know, he, it's interesting. He uses the line revolution undermines belief, um, which is an interesting quote to, for him to go to, um, you know, I, I think lyrically, this is another song much like um, much like welcome to the numb that that feels more relevant today than it did then, talking about the degradation of, of of the environment and civil unrest happening in the cities. and then obviously dropping like flies. If you put this song out today, people would think he was talking about all of that plus the pandemic. And it would be. Yeah incredibly relevant Mm -hmm. you know it didn't feel that relevant to me then um but then again I guess one of the the hallmarks of being a great songwriter is is sometimes you're just ahead of your time
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah um and then from a fun you know point of view uh you know technically uh, the guitar solo reminds me of Zach Wilde uh, and some of his work that he did on the, the song No More Tears with Ozzy Osbourne, you know? Okay. Yeah, you know, just kind of, yeah, I hear people play things and go, well, that sounds like this other guy, <laughs> uh, you know, which you know, it, there's, there's a real good chance. Um, but also that outro, that da-da-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da, da thats classic Aerosmith, Lord of the Thighs. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You yeah. know, with you know, the whammy, screaming guitars at the end, and, you know, I know Nikki's obviously a big Aerosmith fan, and who isn't, but, uh you know, it's a different key, but it, it, that, that's the riff, in my opinion, you know, and that's a badass riff, and it's a great riff to solo over, so if you ever want to give me 15 minutes to take a guitar solo, give me that riff, Uh
0: uh-huh. will get it, uh-huh. you know? <laughs> Absolutely, and that brings us to the closing track of the album, Drift Away.
2: <clears throat> Sorry, um, am I muted? I'm unmuted, okay, cool. i um, It is a good closer because it sort of is like the see you later. This is the story of my life uh, song about how things move away and things change and that kind of stuff. It wasn't, it's not a super great song. I mean, again, it's one of those super well-produced songs. You know what I mean? Um, But it doesn't, you know, and it's a good closer in the sense that it's the last song about, you know, change and moving on. Um, But it's not my, Favorite, you know what I mean? It doesn't stand out as like a super strong song to me. Mike, yeah. When I first got the cassette
1: at the time, um, I I skipped over this song numerous times, and you know, but either way, it's it's a well written song, and to me, it's more of a uh, it could have been like a junk robbie solo
0: track or you know, something he did with you know, a different band. It's a good showcase for his voice. I mean, you really yeah. hear the, the bluesy, uh, raw touches and, and, and melodicism of his voice in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and the chord changes are great. I mean, you know, and it's, I mean, again, well played. I mean, you, you
1: anybody, sit somebody down on an acoustic guitar and say, you record that now. The red light is on. You're on, <laughs> you know. It, it sounds strong and confident, man. You know, these guys aren't faking them when it comes to, to playing their stuff. Um, But, you know, in terms of, like, you know, the the, the old Motley touches on records, you know, that come across in this one, that harmonized, you know, section reminds me of some of the stuff that was in uh, God Bless the Children of the Beast. Okay. You know, it's a cool thing. I mean, you've got to be confident to say, okay, I've got an idea for the the track. Here we go. We're doing this harmonized guitar thing on this acoustic ballad. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But but I, I was reading some interviews, too, with speaking of production, and since we're wrapping this up. Um, a couple of things about Bob Rock. Yeah, because uh, I was Dave. You and I were texting about the the guitar for the practicing musician. You know articles. You know that, that were done around the time of Doctor Feelgood, um, and how Mick was saying like he was like at a loss for coming up with guitar solos, and, and Bob Rock was say, "Well, listen, just here's an idea: play a, a solo that's on one string." Uh
3: huh. Hey. Okay.
1: Cool. You know, have that kind of pers- you know, perspective on how to approach a solo. But I also saw an interview, with, a really cool interview with with Bob Rock. For I, th- I believe what is Gibson Guitars, it's, I think it's, it's called Gibson TV. And if you can check it out, it's like either Gibson Icons or Gibson, you know, Rock Idols. whatever it is. it's a great interview. Look up Gibson. Actually, I, I've rock. seen
0: that interview. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think he mentions that uh, at the time when Motley Crue said, "Hey, we're thinking about you know getting a different singer other than Vince." And I remember Bob saying, "Really? <laughs> no, r- really?" Yeah. but cool that he supported the band enough to say, "You know what? I'll produce the record," and this is what came about.
0: Yeah. And I think Bob, especially on this record, is great at getting uh, great stuff out of Mick. I think as a fellow yeah. guitar player, he really understood what Mick's strengths were um, and, and gave him a chance to shine. And I think, you know, overall, Tommy Lee's playing on this album <laughs> is killer. Um, yeah. You know, Nicky, when you can hear him, sounds good. I mean, you know... Um, So I guess before we talk about what happened after the album came out, um, overall thoughts summing up the record?
2: Uh, Like I said before, a stronger than I thought it was. Now this is, I don't know if this fits into this part of our discussion, but this album I did not know existed. Um, I was, this is 1994. I am completely, (laughs) I think I'm living on my own, out of college, so buying records alone is something that I'm not even being able to, you know what I mean? Is something I'm not really able to afford. I'm living probably either in Portland, Oregon or Los Angeles. And so there's not a lot of, I think 94 was Portland. Um, so I'm not actively seeking metal at this point. The only thing that I remember from this is the Vince Neil song. Right. And thinking that that song was ridiculous. Um, you know what I mean? And not really liking it at all and feeling like, oh, well, I guess Motley Crue's done. Uh-huh. Um, so I feel almost bad because I could have gone back. You know what I mean? Had I had like the money to do this, because like I said before, I mean, I don't think I bought a record for like a decade. You know what I mean? After like 1990, you know, between getting out of college or whatever, everything was radio based or mixtapes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but uh I feel I feel bad. I wish I had actually heard this album. You know what I mean? I think I would have been uh, d- suitably impressed by it. Yeah, um, by it. And um, but again, like I thought Molly Crew was done at this point. I thought they had, you know, the three, four good albums and then they were out and Vince Neil. And, and in my I thought Vince Neil was the one that was going to rise from those ashes. You know what I mean? That he was the one that was going to go on and have the career and the rest of the band was just going to disappear.
1: Well, I mean, well, isn't that funny? Because you know, I mentioned the thing about Nikki saying what he had to do in order to get his songs played on MTV. You know, whereas that Vince New video was all over MTV.
0: Right. Yeah, he met, know, and it looked like to completely him. alienate MTV, and then there was a huge political thing where there was a different head of Electra who yeah. apparently was not interested in promoting Motley Crue, particularly. But, you know,
1: tell me this. We're all
0: songwriters, right? So,
1: you know, what song would you be more proud of? You know, you're invited, but your friend can't come or a song on this record. You know, what would you feel more strongly about? What do you think is a little more sophisticated? Well,
0: yeah, yeah. You're invited, but your friend can't come as a fun little throwaway party anthem, you know, kind of like grade B, David Lee Roth,
2: Van Halen tune. I would be proud of the song that would make me the most money. No, <laughs> okay, all right. It's like... You don't love me. You love my money. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, who knows? Who knows where this stuff happens? You know what I mean? Like there's, um, you know, what, what what's, you know, the whole story about cherry pie by Warren or whatever was written in two seconds. And of course, that's the only song we know from them, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I would hope to say that, you know, the song that I would write would be better, but, um, But like I said, at the time, it was like, I saw nothing of Motley Crue. You know what I mean? At that point, they were, they were uh, done at that point. I didn't know that album even existed. Right. So the album comes out,
0: it actually goes gold, Mm -hmm. which, you know, considering Motley Crue was sort of the definitive sunset strip hair metal band and that genre was never less popular than in about 1994. Um, you know, that's a decent showing, but the last full-length studio album that they put out sold six million copies in the U.S. alone. Mm-hmm. So that had to be a huge, huge disappointment for them. And then the tour wasn't selling tickets. Um, it got scaled down until it was essentially, you know, a theater tour or a club tour, and even that, eventually they pulled the plug, um, So two things, when the album, they did a release party at the Whiskey
3: Mm.
0: where uh, any fan could come and the band was there and they were signing autographs, right? So like you would go there and, and you, you know, like it was... Kind of crazy. It was like pandemonium. I mean, like there were, you know, there was probably 500 people packed in the whiskey and then each guy just sort of stood off in a corner and just signed stuff until everybody got everything signed and they, they went home, you know. Or kind of like the Kiss conventions in 95, right? Yeah, you know? kind okay, of just, like that yeah. or, or like All what right. Penn and Teller does after every show in Vegas. They do that too. They just like sit and take pictures with everybody and sign things until everybody goes home. Anybody that yeah. wants it, you know, um, which was cool. I mean, it was, you know, I actually gave Nikki a demo tape uh, that had my phone number on it that night. And my phone rang at like 4 a.m. And I I didn't pick it up in time to get, you know, to pick the call up. But maybe he called me. I don't know. Um, I'm sure he did. Yeah. So, so. um,
1: What is my son doing? Give me his phone number, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I I know that guy. (laughs) That's
3: right.
0: So then in comparison and contrast, they the last time on the Dr. Feelgood tour, they were in Los Angeles, they played the LA forum for what? Three, four nights in a row, sold out. Yeah. This time they came back and they booked them at the Palladium, which wow. holds maybe 3,500 people tops. Wow. And I don't think they sold it out. Um, Question though, what, what, what uh, point in time was that uh, of the tour? Was it summer or fall or? <laughs> I'd have New to look Thailand? that up. I don't remember. But I'm just going to say, before they even got signed, they played the Santa Monica Civic Center yeah. to 3,000 people.
3: Pretty, pretty now,
0: granted, that was they had publicity from the local radio station that helped them move tickets and, and get the word out. But hmm. still, if you're signed to a major label and you're not selling significantly more tickets on – the tour to support the album than you would be before you even got signed. That can't be a good feeling.
1: No, and it's different from you know Guns and Roses. Doing, Guns and Roses doing what they did a couple years back, where they booked you know a show at the Palladium. You know that's more right. like a fun a show thing that sells, it sells out immediately in, two seconds in seconds and it's
0: yeah an excuse yeah Get up close and sweaty. Yeah, Guns and Roses didn't book that show because they had to. They did because they wanted yeah. to. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, let me ask you this though too. Um, Okay, so did you see that tour? Did you I see did, that yeah. Show? I saw, you know, know?
0: I'm, I'm not a fair weather fan, man. Of okay, course I, I am. <laughs> I'm right,
1: a well, loyalist. We that. <laughs> well, that I am too. But, you know, I'm thinking about this album, um, you know, and what it was you know, sort of, if honestly, competing with. But there are other, you know, bands at the time that were coming out, like the Black Crows, and they released an album called Amorica, which is a really adventurous album for those guys, and a lot of, you know, heavy production and stuff. And it's a killer signing record, and they're almost, you know, companion records in that regard because – you know, those were like albums that were like of these two bands. You know, at the, at the top of their production level in a way. But if the band, you know, believe in the album, and I think they did. I was checking out because I couldn't remember you know what what they played on this tour from this record. They, apparently, they played songs like Hooligans Holiday, uh, Uncle Jack, uh, Misunderstood, um, Love Shine Hammered. You know, so they were playing stuff from the record on that tour. But I have a question for you. You know, obviously, uh, John, I, I assume you didn't see the show. But Dave, if you saw the show in L.A., I remember going to the show um, in Pittsburgh at the, what was the time, it was still called Coca-Cola, you know, Star Lake Amphitheater, right? Okay. So, you know, what, like three or four years earlier, I saw Dr. Feelgood tour, sold out. You couldn't, you know, get another person into the shoehorn, as they say. Super loud, super big, everybody's into it. Um, I don't remember who the opening bands were. I want to say it was typo negative and somebody else was like a triple bill. And I thought, first of all, this seems weird. They're doing a triple bill with Motley Crue. Do they need that many bands? But then again, they did it before with you know Tesla and Johnny Crash. But point being, we had seats in section two row M, which is a great seat. You know, It's basically middle section killer, right? Right. But I remember looking back going, and this is an amphitheater. It's like an outdoor thing with a, a roof and seats outside and a whole big lawn in the back. I mean, there weren't any more people in that place under the pavilion in the, the seating seats. I thought what the hell happened like there's nobody here yeah and I remember I I had four tickets at the time I think I was supposed to give them to I don't know maybe it was you Dave or somebody else but I remember you know whoever it was couldn't go to the show and I remember thinking I'll just I'll just sell the other two tickets out in the parking lot well there's nobody to sell the tickets to wow you know I thought what the hell's going on here so we go see the show and they play and I remember them coming out and yes it was different it was a different band and John's a different singer and they were playing different music but I remember it being sort of a negative vibe where Nikki all of a sudden on the microphone is like, listen, man, you know we know, you know Motley Crue right now, we suck. And you know, we want you right now to say, fuck you Motley Crue. Now you say it, fuck you Motley Crue. And they, they had to say it over and over again. It felt really uncomfortable. And I was just talking to my sister about this today. I said, do you remember that happening? He's like, oh my God, I remember that happening. And I did not want to participate in that chant. I do not want to insult my favorite band while they're in front of me on stage in a major venue but that's what happened. It was almost like they, they knew they were bombing up, and, and they just kind of played into that. But it didn't work. It was uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, that's weird. I, 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 now that you mentioned that, that does sound familiar. I want to say that they did do something like that when they played the Palladium. I don't, yeah, that's really. I'm going to look up
1: footage online. It, it must exist. But I remember it happening. It was really weird.
0: Yeah. It was a weird approach to a show and it, it didn't go over
1: well. You know? I mean the show was already bombing in a way anyways because it was so different and there was nobody there. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they're trying to make themselves for better or just trying to make it look better because it was, you know, a third field audience. I don't know, but it was weird. It it kind of freaked me
0: out. And you contrast that with things that they did later or before that worked so much better, where you really feel like they understood the psychology of the audience where, you know, Tommy will get up there and, you know, and do the whole, you know, I say Motley, you say crew, Motley, you know, and just like, like excites the audience and gets them into it. And, yeah, that's, oh, man. I You know, my memories of the Palladium show are, for one thing, the Palladium is a horrible place to see yeah. any band. And this was before they remodeled it. Although I have to say now that they've remodeled it, I don't think it's really in any way significantly better. Just the sight lines are horrible. I don't know why they can't ramp, like put a, you know, make the floor of that place at more of an angle so that you stand a chance of seeing the people on the stage unless you're right up there. Um But it's not a great place to see a show. It's not a great sounding place. It's like cavernous. And cavernous little, yeah. You know, yeah, for such a small
3: place, linoleum. it's like yeah. you're in
0: a cave in terms of the sound. And It's all concrete and in, in linoleum.
1: You know? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's yeah. concrete and linoleum. It's, it's not a recording studio. It sucks.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so my memories of it, I mean, I liked it. I thought it was good but i also remember seeing karabi sing songs like kickstart my heart and thinking like man this is not something that i'm buying like i just you know like like i need a vince Neal to sell the lyrics like are you ready are you ready girls are you ready now like mm-hmm. like i feel like vince earned that like he you know he could pull it off and it was believable and when john karabi did it he was just kind of going through the motions of it.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's almost like they should have just focused on the new record in a way, and maybe played a couple songs at the end as encores instead of trying to intersperse, you know, the old stuff in the set and make it seem like the same show you were expecting. You know, it was a different band.
0: Yeah, which is not to say I didn't think John Curabi was good. I think he's a yeah, super no, yeah, talented yeah, guy. Yeah. I just didn't feel like that he was the right guy to be singing that song.
1: No, I, I agree. I mean, you know, think of him singing songs like. Lot, you know live wire or you know, or you know like you said dr feelgood or you know shout the devil i mean maybe shout the devil was the best the best thing he could have done but like home sweet home i don't, yeah i, I, I mean it, it was a weird time for music man you know but yeah. at the same time too i mean they were competing with a lot of stuff like i said you know they're competing with rap they're competing with grunge they're competing with uh, industrial in a way you know and they're yeah. trying they if you listen to this record and say what do you how do you classify this record you would probably see all those things that I just said. a mm-hmm, way.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that you mentioned industrial because that'll become much more relevant when we talk about the next uh, studio yeah. release. Um, yeah. But I think what we should do is we should come back next week and we'll talk about Quatrene and we'll talk about all the B sides and singles that they put out because they actually supposedly recorded twenty six tracks for this record, not okay. all of which I think have seen the light of day, but. Um, I have a bootleg DVD of them working on this album, recording in the studio, and almost all of the songs that they're working on are mm. songs that sound really cool and have never come out. I mean, it's not like throwaway wow. tracks or filler. It's just like, oh, wow, that's a whole other song that like they you know, never even put out. So okay. like I think in in some nation, I think this was like, on one hand, a really creatively fertile time for them, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like, you know, the Will Ferrell movie, Land of the Lost? Oh yeah. Huge commercial bomb, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so like you had the kids that grew up watching that show and thought that it was cool, (laughs) that might be interested in watching like a new modern technology version with modern effects of that show and took it seriously. And then you have Will Ferrell fans who are from a different generation and could give a shit about Land of the Lost. And so you, he made that movie as a comedy which insulted the fans of the original show and no fans of his gave a shit about it. So you made a movie for nobody. Right. Like, I feel like as good as this album is, it's kind of an album for nobody because it doesn't satisfy the old Ma- the crew fans and it doesn't bridge the gap to the fans of the new things happening in music.
1: Which is why I still think to this day, you know, had it been uh, an album under a band name or some other band's name, you know, any other band would be super proud to say that I recorded this album because production wise, it is absolutely kick ass and the, the playing is well executed. But it's almost as if they should have just said, you know, this is either, you know, the new Motley Crue or the new, you know, the new originals or whatever you want to say, relate to Spinal tapper you know, just give it a whole new band name because it's it stands alone as a great record. But if you want to classify it as a Motley Crue record, you're gonna have a hard time doing that. Yeah. Had they just reformed as some other band and said this is this is us and this is it, it probably would have taken off in a way. You know, but try to sell that on the Motley Crue moniker, good luck
0: yeah it, it's that old cliche it's a good record but maybe not a great motley Crue record yeah yeah couldn't say any better days that's great yeah, yeah. So cool true. well then we'll we'll be back next week to mop up and talk about motley Crue quatrony and all the other uh miscellaneous songs that were put out as, as b-sides and singles with this